as I joined LinkedIn, I was really afraid and I had this imposter syndrome and I'm like, they're going to find out I don't know data science. They're going to find out I don't know machine learning. And I was panicking. I'm like, everybody's so smart over here. Everybody's so talented. How the hell did I pass the interview? I'm sure they made a mistake. Sometimes I still deal with this imposter syndrome. But there are always going to be things that you don't know, no matter how much you've progressed in your career or life. And that's okay. You just need to be accepting of it and learn that and realize whether that's something you want to learn or even need to learn because you don't need to know everything. You just need to know people who know that so you can always work with them. From the cubicle to the lab, the studio to the war room, climbing the corporate ladder or joining a scrappy startup, experience a day in the life of the jobs you want. This is the Experience a Day in the Life podcast. We interview professionals, entrepreneurs, and recent grads about what a day is actually like on the job, hour by hour, or as we like to call it, they're a diddle, spelled A-D-I-T-L, which stands for a day in the life. This podcast will inspire you to gain experience beyond the classroom and launch a career of your own. We're your hosts, Chris DeBeau and Matt Poe. Welcome to part two in the two-part data deep dive series. In part one, we went through hour by hour a day in Avinash Ahuja's life as a data scientist at LinkedIn. In this episode, we'll take you through Avinash's career journey so you know what skills and experience are necessary to land a job as a data scientist. Avinash started his career in the civil engineering space, but made the transition into computer and data science while studying for his master's degree in civil engineering. One fellowship, teaching assistant position, and data science internship later, and he's working at one of the most innovative business and employment social media platforms in the world. Let's learn how he did it so you can too. The age-old question, what did you want to be when you were growing up? So growing up, I never really had a concrete vision of what I wanted to become, but I definitely knew I wanted to become a scientist of some sort. I also have a certificate from first grade, which certifies that I would become a you know, scientist in the future. And I still cherish that. My mom showed it to me uh, you know, a couple of months ago and I was like, wow, you know, the school is uh, pretty spot on. And I am you know, here in Silicon Valley right now, a data scientist, and uh, it feels really great to be here. Champion story right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you grew up in India and, and you mentioned that the education system, it's a, it's a lot different than over here. Can you go into, before undergraduate, what that education was like? Yes, I grew up in India. I was born and raised in the South Indian city of Chennai. The education system in India is, at least when I was growing up, was quite different. And uh, there was a lot of huge component of memorization in the curriculum. So we were expected to memorize and repeat what we had learned rather than being able to express our own thoughts and express the concepts that we have learned in our own words and language. So that was something I used to struggle with a lot. Growing up, I, I can definitely tell you I was not an A-plus student, but I was very inquisitive. I used to ask a lot of questions. And given the Indian culture, questioning people who are elder to us in age is a sign of disrespect. So that kind of gets confused sometimes in our education system. It is changing now. It was less so in my undergraduate where the professors would encourage us asking questions and we had a lot more freedom of 
expressing the concepts we have learned in our own language but the school system was very rigid speaking of undergrad he went to the national institute of technology in karnataka and studied civil engineering so what made you choose civil engineering to be honest uh I didn't choose civil engineering it was civil engineering who chose me because the way we get assigned to our colleges in undergrad in India is through a national entrance exam and I wrote two of these entrance exams the IIT joint entrance exam which is for the prestigious IITs in India and then uh, I also wrote the AIEEE AIEEE all India engineering entrance examination which is for the NITs and it just so happens that in india the way the undergrad system is structured you need to pick your major before you join your college you don't get a chance to be a general studies major when you're in your you know first year and so you need to pick what you're going to learn before you join the undergrad and it just so happened that my national rank was not high enough for me to choose computer science or electrical engineering because it's it's a hierarchy people with the highest rank tend to pick computer science and electrical engineering and electronics engineering so i knew i wanted to go to this school because the school is really prestigious and i was okay with anything studying anything over there and it happened to be civil engineering but to be really honest i had a ball studying civil engineering which is why i ended up working for 2 years in a civil engineering firm and not changing my fields immediately after Internships in undergrad included one at a construction company monitoring the construction of a residential building which in India are built with concrete and steel. The other internship was working with a civil engineering professor on a project to estimate the arrival time of public transportation buses. This was the first of many experiences throughout his career that fueled his passion for optimization, foreshadowing, if you will. So let's talk about leading up to graduation because it's more of a structured system of getting that first job in India. What was that like? So that's an interesting experience and a lot of undergraduate students in the US would not have this kind of experience. So in India every college has something called a placement cell or a placement department and placement is basically the careers department over here. And the way it happens is like there are companies that want to come in on day 0 to get the best and the brightest students and so these would be the most prestigious companies that come in on day 0 and the way most of them sort the students is either by their gpa so you need to have a minimum gpa of like 8 out of 10 or 8.5 out of 10 to be able to either participate in their uh, aptitude test so you had to have a certain gpa to participate in their aptitude test and then the aptitude test would be maybe a bunch of math problems it would be really general but there would be a lot of problems and you would have a limited time to solve it so they would also assess how fast you are at solving these problems so on day one they would assess you with these aptitude tests and then you would be brought in for the interviews on day 2 and and that's how the process worked and the thing was there were rules structured around this so that once you get a certain type of a job you can't sit in another aptitude test or participate in any other interviews until 80% of the students have a job so it was to prevent a few students from taking away all the jobs like having multiple offers 
He was matched with Larson and Tabro, which is a huge construction and technology conglomerate in India and started there as a graduate engineering trainee. This program was basically to train and show fresh college graduates the different businesses that Larson and Tabro has. After the two-month intensive training boot camp, he had to choose three favorites and he was placed with the oil and gas projects in Mumbai, India. I picked the oil and gas projects team because they had a lot of good design projects under them at that time. And uh, when I joined them, we went through another set of trainings where we learned a lot about the structural engineering software that we are going to use. <laughs> there was another like one month training after I joined this team. And uh, during that process, they asked all of us who had joined that team in that batch if any of us would like to go to Oman. So most of us said yes, and they ended up picking two of us, again, based on our interview scores and the GPA thing. So you can see how much impact it had throughout something as seemingly as unimportant as GPA. So they selected two of us. They had a headcount for only one, but magically they accepted two of us. So me and my friend, then we ended up going to Oman and pursuing our careers over there within LNT. There are a lot of Indian expatriates in the Middle East just because of geography. It's, it's really close to India. It's a five-hour flight from most Indian cities and there is no tax in, in the Middle East. So you don't have to pay income tax and you make uh, significantly more money in the Middle East. But uh, that that was not kind of what I was going for. What I was hoping for was the international exposure because I knew sometime down the line, I did want to pursue my higher education and having international exposure early on in my career would help me with that. So you moved over there. How was that transition for you? Was it was it a rocky transition or was it kind of seamless? Actually, I have to give credit to LNT over here. It was a very seamless transition. They had the accommodation arranged for us. We stayed in the company housing over there, which had uh, also like the company cooks and they would cook for us and they would cook for the whole apartments, uh, you know, in that complex. And there was like a dining area at the first floor where we would all meet up and have dinner. So we didn't have to worry about any of the logistics and uh, everything was taken care of us. And we had transportation to and from our housing to the office and back. And uh, the transition was pretty seamless, but also the employees in LNT Oman were primarily Indian. So it felt like there was just this, the same office that I was working in, except that it's, it's in the middle of a desert. Once he got to Oman, he had another month of training there to make sure the new batch of engineers understood how the business operates. He would shadow managers in different departments, such as planning, welding, piping, production, and design. He decided he wanted to join the design team, making him the design engineer for about six months. There, he was designing oil and gas structures. He worked very closely with the production department, so after that experience, he transferred to the production department to work as a senior engineer. And what we would do over there is we would get the drawings from the design team and the design department. And... Now we get these bunch of drawings and we have to plan. So we need to break out the drawings into parts that individual teams of four or five skilled people can work on. 
and then put them all together. So it's building this giant Lego set. Think of it as a 100,000 piece Lego set. You can't just do it with one team. So we plan, we divide the Lego set into different parts and we'd be like, okay, this team needs to do this first and this team does this first. And when both of them are complete, we put them together. And that's when it opens up possibilities for other teams to work. So I, so when I moved to the production department, I had foremen reporting to me. Each of them would have four to five skilled workers under them. And these skilled workers would be either welders or gas cutters or some form of metal workers. And uh, they had training and certification to perform these uh, metalworking tasks. So over there, I quickly learned that empathy is a good style to manage people because just yelling at people and screaming at people is not a good way to motivate them to do quality work you need to understand what problems they're facing because they too are facing certain problems on site and this can be like uncomfortable working conditions really hot working conditions not enough breaks not enough water and things like that my strategy was always to empathize with them and help understand their problems and try to solve it for them. This was his first leadership role in his career, and he learned a lot about how to take initiative from his manager in the production department. He was a mentor to him. He always encouraged me to work on what I thought would contribute to the company. So there was this one project that I was working on, which was totally different than my actual role. We had a reporting system within the company, and the UI for that was not really great. So when we had to create reports, I would spend like almost an hour and a half or two hours per day creating reports, which was not a really good use of my time because as an engineer, I don't want to be just clicking the UI and inputting data. So I ended up writing a program for that, which actually simulated mouse clicks on my screen and would enter the data for me from an Excel file. So I didn't have to do that. But that took like three months to develop with trial and error and testing. And he really helped me with managing my time. And when I was falling back on some of my work, he was like, you know, you focus on this, you're doing a really good job on this. I will help you solve problems with your primary work. And this is a really good contribution. And that encouragement that I got on on solving a problem that was not really my charter, but he still supported me to do that throughout the process was really nice. And he also encouraged me to apply for graduate school and asked me to, you know, dream big, which really motivated me to do a good job in my applications. And he wrote me some great recommendations as well. Avinash told us he found out they still use the code he wrote to generate reports six years after he left the company. His friend and colleague, who still works there, told him it's probably saved the company millions of man hours by now. So you told us your mentor told you to dream big. Is that where the idea of moving to the United States came from? Or was that always the goal for you to get over here? So that's a typical Indian engineering dream, like go to the U.S. and and study in the U.S. eventually. But definitely I would have gotten comfortable with my life in Oman had it not been for my manager who encouraged me and pushed me to apply for graduate school because, yeah, I was making good money as a fresh graduate. I wasn't paying taxes. My rent was paid for by the company. What more do I want? So he helped me get out of that comfort zone and and prepare for GRE, prepare for my TOEFL and gave me time off when I needed. But he also pushed me to work hard when we needed it on site. So he, he knew how to balance both sides. And uh, yeah, without his encouragement, I would have probably not come to the U.S. and pursued my graduate studies. 
He attended the University of Illinois to pursue his master's in civil engineering. He was also a technology assistant for the civil engineering online education department. That meant he was making sure all the technology worked correctly and the professors had the software they needed. And uh, I would also set up any means of communication or support the online students needed in case they wanted to reach the professors and they weren't available. So although this job for the first two years or one and a half years was categorized as a teaching assistant job, I was actually doing a lot of technology support for the online education department. So this also led to me becoming a part of SITES, which is Center for Teaching Innovation and Excellence, and I helped the university design other online courses as well for the rest of the university. I want to talk to you about um, what it was like assimilating to the United States. Was it challenging? Was it a huge culture shock? Uh, Moving to the U.S. uh, wasn't a huge culture shock for me because I did grow up in the city in India. And uh, growing up, I did have access to a lot of Western media. And I grew up watching Friends and, you know, Dexter's Lab and Cartoon Network. Coming to the U.S. wasn't particularly difficult for me. What was difficult was the workload as a graduate student. So, so far, I've had my food cooked for me. I've had everything done for me. I haven't had to do much myself. But now when I moved into the U.S. as a graduate student, I had to cook my own food. I had to make sure I have my meals ready. I had to plan. I had to grocery shop. I had these 101 other logistical things that I hadn't thought about apart from studying and working as a teaching assistant. So the first six months were really hard for me, just trying to get a hang of how the education system works, what are the courses that I need to register for, making sure I'm top of my uh, I'm on top of my assignments, my projects because everything was so fast-paced over here, the professors, in a good way, won't spoon-feed you. They won't coddle you. So if you don't keep up, you're going to be left behind. And I learned how to be on top of my game, learned a lot of time management. I was still a very bad procrastinator, and I still am to some extent. I'm definitely much better now, but it's, it's still a huge learning process. And that was the cultural change that I faced. And also, it didn't help in 2013 when I moved to Illinois, Urbana-Champaign was the same year as Polar Vortex. So I experienced plus 45, plus 50 degrees Celsius weather in Oman that summer. And the same winter, I experienced minus 40 degrees Celsius in Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to (laughs) (laughs) This is winter. While he was studying to get his first master's, he was inspired to get a second master's degree in computer science. The reason being was because his civil engineering studies revolved around solving optimization problems in the field. So that would be like, how do we better schedule projects? How do we manage resources? And some of them involved these set of algorithms called genetic algorithms that help in scheduling and optimizing scheduling problems. And while I was working on them, I was also working on certain computer vision problems with another professor. And these were computer vision problems for civil engineering. So can we use drones and cameras to capture the progress of construction, you know, and and compare that to an AutoCAD model and, and make sure that the construction is happening on time. So when I was working on these projects, there was a lot of computer science. And at that time, my advisor had a PhD in civil engineering and a master's in computer science. So he encouraged us to, uh, you know, explore certain computer science courses, which was really helpful. So 
this was a whole new course load that you had to take after you graduated or was it kind of simultaneous? So the way I structured my transition, it was kind of simultaneous. I did take a lot of computer science courses while I was in the civil engineering program itself because I knew I was going to be able to transfer these credits when I joined the computer science program. And this would also help me prove my interest to the computer science department for the whole admissions process because I still had to write a statement of purpose, get recommendations from a civil engineering faculty, from a computer science faculty. So I had to go through the whole application process again. It wasn't just a transfer, but I did not have to submit my GRE scores because that was already done with the civil engineering department. The three main subjects he took for his computer science master's degree were machine learning, social and economic networks, and the most influential, of course, algorithms. Taught by a professor, Jeff Erickson, and I learned a lot from these three courses. So these courses fundamentally altered the way I think about problems and how I approach them. So even in life, like if you ask my friends, I end up bringing machine learning algorithms into my daily life and use them to like solve problems that I might be facing outside of work in my personal life. And, and they work really well. So the machine learning course, I learned a lot of theory and the fundamentals of machine learning, the mathematics behind it, how it originated, what are the different kinds of problems. And the way that course was structured was we would learn a lot of machine learning theory, which is just mathematics and linear algebra during the class. And for our assignments, we would do a lot of programming. We would implement those linear algebra problems in MATLAB or in Python or C++. When I transition to computer science after the summer of 2015. That's when my real teaching assistantship started and I was interacting with students over there and I was teaching data structures and algorithms. And I need to give a shout out to all the students in UIUC because I learned so much from the students. They would ask such amazing questions and I was like, why didn't I ask that question when I was studying the subject? And I have met so many just prodigies and genius students at programming and I had so much to learn from my students you know and that was a great experience that UIUC provided as well. You were also a data science fellow at Data Science for Social Good. Can you talk to us about how you got into that and what you were doing? So I learned about the Data Science for Social Good program from a friend with whom I took the social and economics network class. We were working on this project regarding international trade and we were trying to predict trade relationships between different countries and he was joining the program in 2014 and he told me about it and it seemed really interesting and something that I wanted to do so I got a lot of tips from him and and applied to the program next year and I happened to get accepted for it and it was an amazing learning experience. We had a three-month paid fellowship in Chicago. So there were 42 fellows and all of them from different backgrounds, some from statistics, some from education, some from policy, some from computer science. And, and some of them were domain experts in what they do, right? Like equivalent to the vertical teams at LinkedIn. And they knew how that field works. And then the others were computer scientists and uh, statisticians who, who would help make sense of the data from, from that domain. I learned a lot during that program and what I was working on personally with a team of really great people was on understanding the skills gap in Chicago's labor market. So we had a data from uh, 
another company. It was huge resume and job posting dump that was given to us. And we worked on uh, natural language processing, skill extraction, estimating what is the supply and demand of skills in Chicago's labor market. And you see where this is going. So that happened. And the best thing about that program was everybody was encouraged to learn what they wanted from not just what the mentors were teaching, but also from their peers and fellows. And what I learned was there is so much that I don't know. And three months is not enough to become an expert in data science, but what it made me an expert in was what I don't know. And now armed with this knowledge, I still had one and a half years more to complete my computer science degree because I was two years into my uh, civil engineering degree and I just wrapped that up. So this was a perfect beginning to my computer science degree because I knew exactly what I don't know and I structured my computer science education based on that. So I want to talk about what was going through your head after graduating with your master's in computer science. What were your goals at that point? It seemed like you found your interests while you were studying something else. Was that something that made you nervous in, in finding job opportunities or did you did you feel prepared? Can you walk us through your sentiment there? So uh, I felt a little nervous around the end of my last semester, which was in December 2016. A little stressful because I was wrapping up, converting to a non-thesis uh, degree and making sure I had all the credits. And at the same time, being an international student, we also have to worry about our visa issues and work permit. And there were only a few companies that were willing to sponsor that. So it was a little stressful towards the end of that semester. But I did manage to get a few job offers. Also from where I was interning at Anheuser-Busch, I had a job offer from them and they were willing to sponsor my visa. And uh, I, I did look for some more opportunities because I wanted to, you know, do justice to myself and not just accept the first offer that I got. And after a little bit of looking around, this happened like in the last week of December, just before Christmas break, I applied for a job on LinkedIn for LinkedIn. And this was the eighth time and I'd got rejected like five, six times before internships and other job offers. And I was like, you know what the hell, let me just apply. This looks like a good job opportunity. And the recruiter got back to me within like six hours. That was the fastest. And then we set up some interviews and bam, bam, bam. I had the job offer. He got the job offer at LinkedIn on December 23rd and didn't start until March. So he took some time off to visit family and relax. A little reward for studying so hard and having it all pay off. When you were first brought on at LinkedIn, what were some challenges that you faced when you first came on? Was it a nice smooth transition or was it a nice, rough, bumpy road? So logistically, the relocation from Champaign to the Bay Area was very seamless and that wasn't bumpy at all. But as I joined LinkedIn, I was really afraid and I had this imposter syndrome and I'm like, they're going to find out I don't know data science. They're going to find out I don't know machine learning. And I was panicking. I'm like, everybody's so smart over here. Everybody's so talented. How the hell did I pass the interview? I'm sure they made a mistake. Sometimes I still deal with this imposter syndrome, but there are always going to be things that you don't know, no matter how much you've progressed in your career or life. And that's okay. You just need to be accepting of it and learn that and realize whether that's something you want to learn or even need to learn because you don't need to know everything. You just need to know people who know that so you can always work with them. 
Avinash's tips for students wanting to get into data science is to focus on the fundamentals. You need to have a strong background in stats, linear algebra, and programming languages like R, Python, and Scala, just to name a few. He also said the biggest problem in data science isn't finding the solution, it's finding the problem. You need to have a well-defined problem and you can't start working on a solution unless you have a problem that's well-defined, constrained. You are not going to be able to solve everything on day one on the first tab, you know? So you need to chunk the problem into different parts into easily digestible pieces and then work on the problem. So don't get ahead. It's okay, break down the problem into different smaller pieces and work on those pieces. And you will also get a sense and an idea of whether you're going in the right direction or not, rather than if you're working on this monolithic project and you spent like a week or two on it, and then you realize that this is heading nowhere. So break down the problem and make sure you have defined the problem in a succinct, concise way. That's going to help you a lot. And when you're applying for jobs or internships, it would be wise to update and optimize your LinkedIn profile. Yes, Avinash has some tips from the inside on how to do it. Our analysis have shown like the profile photo is one of the most important components of your profile. And members with the profile photo receive up to like 20x more profile views. People want to know they are talking to somebody real and it's not just maybe a bot or a spam account or people with profile views get a lot more messages, like 30 times more messages than people who don't have a profile photo. And I could go on and on about the statistics. Profile photo could single-handedly be one of the most important components of your profile. You know, make sure your profile is up to date. You have your current position, company. I know a lot of our audience is students and college graduates. And it's okay. Put on your projects that you have done. Put on your internships that you might have. Put on your part-time jobs you have. People with a full profile, even if you think it's not comparable to somebody who's much more senior in their career, that is okay. Because this allows the recruiter to reach out to you and search search for you based on profile information that you have updated. So just make sure you have a good profile. It's okay if you think that, you know, this might not be important enough. Don't worry about that. Because when the recruiters are searching for college graduates and students, they know that you have had only a limited time in your life to work on certain things. And that's that's not a problem, but they should be able to search for you and they won't be able to search for you if your profile is incomplete. Avinash recently moved to work on the machine learning team at LinkedIn as a software engineer. It doesn't get more optimized than that. Congratulations, Avinash. That wraps up part two in the Data Deep Dive series. Huge thanks to Avinash Ahuja for sharing his wisdom throughout this Experience A Day in the Life podcast series. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to part one in this series to experience a day in the life of a data scientist at LinkedIn. So they say you can't get a job without experience, but need experience to get the job. But luckily, we have quite the experience. You can join our team and experience a day in the life of the jobs you want by applying to be a student editor. Regardless of your major or amount of experience, this is the perfect stepping stone into any internship or career. Find more info and sign up at xadiddle.com slash students. That's xadiddle.com slash students. 
Thanks for listening. Head over to exadiddle.com. That's X-A-D-I-T-L.com. There you can find the show notes for this series and more A Day in the Life articles. And you can get to know us and our guests more by joining our communities on social media. Follow at xadiddle on Instagram and on LinkedIn by searching for Krista Bow and Matt with one T Poe. If you learned something in this episode, please take some time to help our mission by leaving a positive rating and review of the show. Each week, we bring you a new interview series with guests from different jobs and different industries. In each series, we'll live a specific day in the life, hour by hour, and experience their career journey. So don't forget to subscribe.